0: Hello my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week the last set of questions that Helen and I are going to try and answer and we've grouped these under the heading General. Questions about predictions, inspirations and the presidency of Donald Trump. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books and with the summer of Covid-delayed sport now underway, The LRB has a special offer for Talking Politics listeners. Subscribe for just £1 an issue, that's six months of the LRB, for just £12. And you'll also get a collection of the LRB's best pieces about sport, introduced by me, David Runciman, and featuring Tarek Ali on cricket, Carl Miller on football, Amiya Srinivasan on surfing, among many others. All for free. Just use the URL lrb.me slash freebook. One word. That's lrb.me slash freebook. As before, the questions are being put to us by our producer, Catherine Carr. We had so many questions, and there are so many we'd like to have answered, and we didn't get to. We are holding them, and we hope we're going to get a chance to get to these later on. If you stick with this episode at the end, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about our plans for the summer and for the autumn. But before that, here's
1: Catherine.
2: i just close some more doors.
1: <laughs> That's it. The first question in the general section is this. Could Trump only happen in America, or is it possible for Britain to have its own TV star-turned-politician? And if so, what side of politics would British society give birth to?
0: So my feeling about that question is, there's the TV bit. Could British politics have a kind of TV star-turned-politician? And as many people have pointed out, we've sort of got one in a way. I mean, not really, but Boris Johnson, after all, no question, some of his popular appeal was driven by the fact he was kind of funny once. He isn't funny anymore, but he was funny once on TV. And TV celebrity and politics are not completely disconnected in the UK. But I don't think the distinctive feature of Trump is the fact that he's a TV star turned politician. That doesn't feel like the most significant thing about him. The most significant thing about him is that he wasn't a politician. In a way, it didn't really matter what he was. So he was a businessman of a kind. Of a kind, He took over a political party from the outside. In a way, that's the question. And it seems to me that is much of it. Much of the Trump story is quintessentially American. I'd be really interested to know what Helen thinks about this. But I, it's really hard to see it, that version of it happening anywhere else. And some of this is is about the practicalities of how party leaders are chosen. So the Trump phenomenon really does require a primary system of election of party leader. The the outsider takeover. Because Boris Johnson, though he has the TV side of his personality, he is a politician. And his takeover of his party, and there's no question that he's turned his party into something that it wasn't before he became its leader. He's shifted it quite significantly in a different direction. He's appealing to a different demographic, he's creating a different kind of Coalition, but he did it as a quintessential insider. And the way in which he won that election was through members of parliament and then through the membership. It's not the primary system which opens up the possibility of someone from the outside coming in and really almost subverting the party, which Trump did. And this isn't really the question, but it does seem to me that one of the features of British politics that is under strain is the way in which parties choose their leaders. You know, there's two sides to that dynamic. Johnson exemplified it. Corbyn, in a different way, exemplified it. Keir Starmer is currently, you know, he's under strain, partly because of it. Leaders are chosen in part by members of parliament, because we have a parliamentary system. And to be leader, you have to, though. Corbyn sort of bucked this trend. You have to have the support and the consent of your parliamentary party. And then by the membership. But the membership is not the same as a more or less open, more or less open primary election and British politics is struggling to choose leaders in a way that captures the wider electorate or at least parties seem to be slightly caught that the support of members of parliament doesn't really cut it and then the members are not really representative actually not representative at all of the wider public and I I can't see it in the short term but in the medium term whether there's a pressure towards something closer to a primary system form of politics I think is a it's a real question. One last thing before Helen come in. The question sort of asks, which side would it come from? You know, Would this be, could the left produce an outsider? Well, the left did produce an outsider. Jeremy Corbyn was not a TV star by any stretch of the imagination, and he was a career politician. But the left has produced an outsider takeover in a way of the party. And I think it could happen on either side. I think it could also happen for one of the minor parties, not an outsider, but someone who becomes leader on the basis of a popular appeal that has its origins outside of parliamentary politics. And I said this in the previous episode, I think the Green Party is an interesting case. It's you know, The Green Party is really chastened by its very brief experience of having a, a leader figure whose celebrity was based on TV, and that was David Icke. You know, British politics has had these slightly weird TV politicians. Robert Kilroy Silk was another. But David Icke was briefly a prominent figure in the Green Party before. It turned out that being a TV personality was not his calling card. For people who aren't familiar with David Icke, people not from the UK, David Icke is Britain's now leading conspiracy theorist, and he believes some pretty crazy things. But the Green Party seems like the kind of party that could conceivably have someone as a leader who comes from outside of politics. Other parties too, and of course, the other possibility, though it's incredibly hard in the British political system, is to create a new party. Nigel Farage did that. Nigel Farage's appeal was partly based on TV. Nigel Farage was not in that sense a career politician. But the Trump phenomenon doesn't seem to me to map onto any of those things. Trump, to answer turn a long answer into a short answer, Trump was and is quintessentially a function of American politics.
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty hard to imagine a British Trump for an, a number of reasons, some of which David has already said. I mean, I think on the television question itself, it is part of the Trump story because he he took his television style, blunt speaking, sort of attacking sort of various parties and, and turned it into Twitter. And I don't think the Twitter aspect of it should be underestimated, not least because of the publicity that it generated and created the politics television audience for Trump. But the way in which Trump communicated, I think, was a continuum from the way he was on television to the way that he ran for the presidency. I think though, the other aspect of it that is harder to sort of get one's head around is the way in which Trump related to the existing structures in American politics because as, as David said in one sense he he hijacked a party um, the Republican party by his ability to do well in the primaries his ability to do well was quite predictable given the the weaknesses of the Republican party but once he'd won the nomination then he did become the Republican party's candidate for president albeit to a considerable extent by the end of that 2016 general election campaign the Republican Party establishment had disowned him but it's still given him access to all the big Republican Party donors and that had an influence I think on on how the Trump presidency played itself out. I think the third thing that is different is that it's pretty difficult to see how Trump succeeded in the way in which he did including in his ability to win sufficient Republican establishment party support for much of the course of the 2016 general election, though not the final part of it, without understanding the place that geopolitics played and America's position in the world played in the 2016 election campaign. And in Britain, we don't really have elections about geopolitics in the same way in which that they do in the United States, and certainly in which the 2016 election was. I think the big difference with Boris Johnson is that the one part of his career, I think, where you might say there's some relationship between the television aspect of it and his political success was when he was able to win the London mayoral elections, particularly the first time as a Conservative. Now we think of, we talk about London very much as a a Labour city, and for him to have won that mayoral election at a point in which the Conservatives hadn't come back to power, so it was prior to the 2010 general election, was a reflection of his ability to appeal to London voters, the kind of London voters who didn't vote Conservative before that and haven't voted Conservative since many of whom would now be horrified by Boris Johnson. But he was then able, I think, to sort of do a kind of shtick around being somewhat funny and seeming slightly above the usual partisan political fray, even though being a, a member of the Conservative Party. I think they're the Boris Johnson that's become leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister is, is something very different and can't really be understood independently of Brexit. I mean, when all said and done, the Conservative MPs made Johnson Prime Minister because he was the only one of the potential leaders who there was any possibility could rescue the Conservatives from the difficulties that they'd gotten into in Brexit. And they picked somebody who was electorally, he proved to be electorally, successful for them. So in that sense that they just did what you would expect panicked parliamentarians to do in the circumstances in which that they see the potential death of their parliamentary party, and perhaps even more broadly than that. So I don't think we should overdo the Boris Johnson is a different kind of politician narrative.
0: And I'm really struck now by how bad he is on TV, given TV was part of his original way into becoming a distinctive kind of politician. Like you say, he's not funny anymore and he's he's stiff and awkward and it doesn't matter in a way. That's one of the ways in which he feels like a very different kind of politician from the one that he was. I mean, he's a poor debater, for sure. He doesn't come across well on TV in the House of Commons. I don't know what he's like in the flesh in the House of Commons, but it's an awkward style. He is relentlessly on TV. I mean, the other thing about him that's very distinctive is that he fully embraces old-fashioned campaigning style. So there's constant 30-second, one-minute sound bites of him responding to things. There are endless photo opportunities. He must be the most conventionally photo-opt politician of this era. But whatever it was that he had, that distinctive quality that made him seem like you say, as though he was kind of mocking the thing that he does, and he saw the joke like we did, Maybe it's still there in the flesh. Maybe it's still there in person. I've read lots of accounts of him on the campaign trail. There are recent, really interesting, recent profiles of him, including in the Atlantic, which still suggests that he's got that side of his personality quite prominently on display when you meet him one-to-one or when you see him work a room, but he's not good on TV.
2: Well, I think that the question of TV, not to try and make this sound like a supervision, (laughs) needs to sort of like, we shouldn't generalise too much about what this good at TV means because obviously the kind of television that Boris Johnson was doing when when he was on Have I Got News For You is a rather different and much more limited audience kind of show than what The Apprentice was in the United States. So I think that the Johnson that was capable of appealing to the... London voters who wouldn't usually give two seconds thought to voting conservative and regarded him as somewhat funny is very different than the kind of appeal that Johnson wants to construct now. And I I wouldn't say that that TV persona that he had then really sort of flows into the persona that he wants to put on display now or the one that he politically needs to put on display. The one bit where there's some commonality, where he seems to like stand aside from much of the political debate was the way in which when it came to the crisis if you like of Brexit that he talked about it in a non-angst ridden way he spoke as if he just regarded it still as a unequivocal good thing that Britain was leaving the European Union now I don't actually think that he did think it was an unequivocal good thing when he was leading the leave campaign but that's Another matter is in terms of what his public persona was, and he was telling the voters that it was going to be all right, that they'd been right, and they were going to get what they voted for. And I, I don't think you need anything that's particularly complicated in terms of how to understand the ways in which he's constructing that persona to see why that aspect of him works, regardless of what he does in the House of Commons, or regardless of whether he comes over as articulate or coherent on substantive policy points.
0: That's true. And actually, as you say that, I was thinking back to some of the sort of set piece parliamentary occasions at the peak hysteria around Brexit prorogation and so on in the autumn of 2019. A couple of epic parliamentary, they weren't debates, they were sort of shouting matches with quite a lot of really heightened emotion. And particularly from the opponents of Brexit, a kind of almost wild accusatory tone. And I remember being very impressed by his ability to maintain that tone, which was, as you describe it, a kind of, I'm not going to go down the road of thinking that you know, we're all standing on the edge of a precipice and everything's about to explode. You know, I'm, I'm doing what I was put in place to do. And he, he wrote it out and often standing at the dispatch box for hours, he wrote it out. And... Something came across there and even came across on TV a sort of sense that in the the sort of bare pit of metropolitan hysteria, he was speaking for people who thought that the other side were overreacting. And that was impressive for sure. So, one last thought on this this is not about TV, but it's about politicians, not in this case coming from outside of politics at all, but affecting a kind of reconfiguration by refusing to play the game. As we record this, Macron has just suffered a sort of crushing defeat in regional elections in France. The French presidential election is a really interesting question, which I'm sure we'll be discussing in much more detail as we go through the year later in the year. But the traditional parties in France, which were written off, are a long way from being dead, even on the left and certainly on the centre-right. Both Le Pen and Macron have just taken a drubbing. And the old party structure's are reasserting themselves. In Germany, who knows what will happen in that election, but the CDU are looking reasonably well-placed, and they've chosen as their successor for Merkel a pretty conventional politician. I mean, not, not an outsider, not a TV star, not someone with much charisma, as far as one can tell. The old party structures, even in the United States, after all, Joe Biden is president, Donald Trump is not president. There was a feeling a couple of years ago that these parties were really vulnerable and either outsiders might co-opt them or people would set up alternative movements or even parties that would pose serious challenges to them. And Macron was incredibly successful in doing that. But the old parties are incredibly hard to kill off. And I think that period of a couple of years ago looks quite distant now. Politics in the Western democracies does not look like it's moving beyond the structures of political parties with leaders who come from within rather than without
2: Yes, I think I will put a few caveats, and I think that the Democratic Party that Joe Biden is now leading is near unrecognizable at least in some respects it's unrecognizable from the one that Barack Obama was effectively leading. so the Trump experience hasn't left either the Republicans or the the Democrats as the kind of parties that they were before. Trump's insurgency. In the case of Germany, I think that's the country that's had the most stable party system through this. Obviously, it has seen both a significant rise in support for the Green Party and the rise of the alternative for Deutschland. But that has been about the fragmentation of a German party system without the actual structural shape of it really changing. The interesting question in this respect is France. It could be the case, just Looking on the surface, anyway, at these results, that what is really played out is high levels of abstention in these regional elections, and that has allowed the centre-right party, the Republicans, to to do well. The real question is for France is when it gets to the the next presidential election next year, whether we're still going to be in a situation where the two candidates in the final round will be Macron and Le Pen. And if that's the case, I think you'd have to say that the French party system would have entered some kind of terminal decline.
0: But it, it really is an open question for now, isn't it? I think, yes, it is. Yes. And and if nothing else, one thing that you see is in when there's a lot of abstention in low turnout elections, the one thing that parties are good at doing is dragging out the few people who can be bothered to vote to the polls. These insurgent or outsider movements do tend to depend on getting people to vote who don't normally vote. And when that ceases, the party system kicks back in.
2: I think the question that we don't really, that there's unclear in what's happened in France thus far, whether part of the low turnout of potential national front voters, particularly given what the polling was before, is down to the fact that there's, in some places anyway, weak support for the regional governments in France.
1: Um, it's good we've only got four of these questions.
0: (laughs) Sorry that was quite long. (laughs) No no it was a
1: good answer but I got stuck on Robert Kilroy Silk I have to say. Uh, The second question is can the 1990s now be viewed as a decade of missed opportunities both in UK domestic politics and internationally?
0: I can totally see what this question is getting at for sure. The 1990s now look like a period of Remarkably benign political conditions. And I know that there are many people who feel that particularly the first Blair government represented a missed opportunity that the Blair government, given the extraordinarily benign conditions in which it came to power, huge parliamentary majority, economies both stable and growing, great popular support was locked in by the pledges and the promises it made not to rock the boat too much in order to get elected. And it took a while, took a long time to get beyond that. And by the time the party might have thought it was beyond that, it was trapped in the psychodynamics of the Blair-Brown Wars and then trapped in the even worse dynamics of the Iraq War. So was the Blair government a missed opportunity? Maybe. And maybe internationally, one might say the Clinton administration is something of the same. But all my instincts tell me that, benign conditions are when it's almost hardest to get things done in politics, particularly the way democratic politics works. You know, it needs angst to drive it. And the thing that, with hindsight, it looks like people should have done, which was to recognise that these were real opportunities to do things differently, to be more radical, to be more adventurous, to take more risks. That really is hindsight. The drivers of democratic politics are immediate pressures, and absent those pressures, there is a tendency to hold on to what you've got. And also, I think, to project it outwards as well. I mean, what's sort of distinctive about the 1990s in part is that these very secure, as Clinton's administration was up and down, he certainly wasn't secure in his first two years, but relatively secure and certainly governing under conditions of economic prosperity and relative, it's always relative, but relative domestic tranquility. And the fact that so much of the later part of the Clinton administration was consumed by the Monica Lewinsky affair is evidence of the relative domestic tranquility. There is then, a, I think, a tendency to project outward. So in a way, the ambition was international rather than domestic. And certainly you saw that increasingly with Blair. You also saw it in the 2000s as well. The idea that this is an opportunity post-Cold War to change the international order rather than the domestic order. That doesn't look so much like a missed opportunity as an errand which was not going to end particularly well. The priorities seemed wrong. I think probably the nineteen nineties were an opportunity to do more domestically that wasn't taken. But if you break politics down, I mean Helen's got a much clearer sense of this than I have. But if you break politics down into a period that runs from the end of the Cold War, which maybe we could date from 91, 92, through to sometime in the middle 2000s, so not exactly ending with the financial crisis, but a bit before that, things starting to shift. So there's a sort of decade and a bit period. The Great Moderation is narrower than it's conventionally described from sort of 91 to 2007. But in that decade, much possibly could have been done. But almost any democratic politician under those conditions, I think, is going to be risk averse. I think there's going to be a tendency to hold rather than to twist. And we're now living in a period where, and this is since the financial crisis, where there's much more of an opportunity to take a gamble in politics, particularly as we've just been talking about for outsiders, but not only for outsiders. I think the idea that benign conditions represent the opportunity for change is one of the myths that we tell ourselves about democracies. Democracies change when they're scared, and when they're not scared, they tend to hunker down.
2: I tend to think of the the 90s with some caveats about not generalising too much about some of the crises that happened in that decade. I tend to think of it more as a decade of complacency and the belief that the world could be remade was quite a problem, I think, with political thinking of the 90s. And I'd say that Blair was a particular um, exhibit, A, of a kind of denial of the depth of political problems and why political stability is something and political order is something that's Pretty precarious when all's said and done. I think one of the things that happened in the 90s was the ways in which the end of the Cold War and the fall of the the Soviet Union, as the Soviet Union and Soviet rule in Eastern Europe were understood, was pretty distorting. Because as we know, they came out of it a kind of narrative didn't even have to really be Fukuyama's, but some kind of narrative about universal history as if Western liberal democracy had become the norm to which all other societies, cultures, were moving through time to be like. It was really nonsensical when you looked at what actually had happened at the, the end of the, the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union, in particular I would say the fall of the Soviet rule in Eastern Europe, where religion and nationalism had been a very important part of the story of what have happened. So it's pretty difficult, I think, to get carried away with an idea that we're in a moment of universal history when the forces, the structural forces that had come at the end of the Cold War, were the assertion of religious sentiment against the Soviet Union in the Soviet Union, or at least, I'm not saying that was the cause of the end of the Soviet Union, I'm saying that you could see the fall of, of Soviet communism, at least as a story in relation to Russia itself, as a story whereby in a struggle between the Russian Orthodox Church and communism that the Russian Orthodox Church won. It was pretty difficult to understand what had gone on in Poland or Hungary or then Czechoslovakia without understanding nationalist resistance to Soviet uh, rule. So I think the political vocabulary that was used to understand the 90s at the time was like fundamentally misguided. I think if you look at it in terms of Britain and you look at the complacency I think the place where we can say that the the consequences of the complacency have been most pernicious have been the union and the decisions that the Blair government made about the manner in which Scottish and Welsh devolution were pursued and we're now living with the consequences of that. I think that the the interesting counterfactual about the 90s and missed opportunity may be about climate change because this was a point, particularly at the end of the decade, where at least in Western democracies, there was perhaps more political consensus about the need to do things than there is now, at least amongst voters, and that this was an opportunity that wasn't taken. And I think that at that point, you might say that benign economic conditions are perhaps easier to deal with climate questions than the the post-2008, more crisis-ridden economic times. I think the counterfactual to that argument would be that at the international level, that the 90s, the late 90s, was a very unpropitious time to be trying to act more collectively about climate because it was a time in which the, the Chinese government was absolutely focused on economic development and regarded it as an affront to justice that China's economic development should in any way be constrained by a need to reduce fossil fuel consumption.
0: I suppose you could say the 1990s why didn't politicians have more of a sense of the two things that are now dominant in our world, which is that was the early days of the information technology, the digital revolution, and it was the early days of the rise of China. And why were politicians not more sensitive to where this was heading? And I think you would just have to have been a remarkably far-sighted and indeed courageous politician in the 90s to take sort of preemptive measures to deal with the possible consequences of these two things one or two decades down the line. I don't think democratic politics is set up for those kinds of choices to be made. And I think something similar is true of climate. I mean, to ask of politicians that they should be thinking of the world in 20 years time, the world that we now inhabit, back in the 90s, is asking too much of them But were that to be possible at all, I think it would have required institutional change. I mean, it's the thing that I've talked about a lot, but the one thing that hasn't happened from the 90s to now, that there's been significant change in sort of personnel and technique in democratic politics, and there's been a whole series of surprising, sometimes remarkable electoral outcomes. Institutionally, our democracies are pretty stuck where they were back then because democracies do not know how to reform themselves institutionally. So if there was, say, greater public consensus on climate questions, translating that into political and policy outcomes wasn't easy then and isn't easy now. And I think it would have required, and it does require now, opening democratic politics up to different ways of doing things, different ways of involving, engaging, possibly even shaping public opinion outside of electoral cycles, over longer terms. And we didn't do that then, and we're not doing it now. And I'm not sure we ever will do it. But to ask of democratic politicians, under those conditions, in these kinds of institutional systems, to preempt the world in twenty, thirty years time, just was asking too much.
2: I think that there's another really interesting question that comes out of this. And it's particularly about the United States and American politicians in relation to the the China question. Because if you look at the ways in which the agreement that was made for China, first of all, to have normalized trade relations with the United States, and then to have entry to the World Trade Organization, there is a way of looking at that, which basically says that American politicians were naive I mean, this was an argument, actually, that some people at the time, like the politician and Pat Buchanan were making, that the Chinese were practising, so obviously, strategic trade, and then American politicians were applying free trade arguments to the situation. And we've now obviously moved to a position where the trade relationship between the United States and China is viewed by almost every politician in Washington through the lens of geopolitical American-Chinese rivalry. So we can look back and say, well, there were people at the time who were saying trade was a geopolitical question so how come that these politicians were deceiving themselves is it part of the deception that more general complacency and that more general misunderstanding I think of history that was in evident in the 90s but the alternative way of looking at it is to say no no, no they weren't deceived at all they understood at least what some of the consequences were but this was always like a distributional conflict and that to put it in perhaps overly crude terms that American politicians at the time backed American corporate interests over the interests of American manufacturing workers. And maybe that they were then caught out by quite the geopolitical ramifications of that, but that they did understand what they were doing and they weren't actually naive about the economics, at least, of the the situation. But I do think in terms of the ways in which the politics of this have since worked out and most American politicians are now acting as if that era was a mistake in the way in which China was dealt with is quite revealing because I think in part they've got to this position because there have been a sense in which the distributional consequences of the decisions that they made back in the late 90s and the early 2000s came back to bite them through the Trump phenomenon.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.
1: So a slight change of tack for the last two questions. And the first of those two is this. What are the things that changed and shaped your thinking? Books, thinkers, academics, novels, films, music even.
0: I don't know if I'm going to do music. <laughs> and I've on the History of Ideas podcast, I've talked quite a lot about some of the thinkers and the books that have had an impact on me. So my answer to this question, I'm going to talk about two writers, who I often find myself thinking about. So one is someone who died recently, a journalist, Janet Malcolm, who died in June, and who didn't write about politics. She was a New Yorker writer, and I've often been influenced by people who've written in the New Yorker, I should say. This isn't a plug. I find that form, long form of writing about all sorts of things, including about politics, very appealing. But Janet Malcolm, she wrote about journalism, perhaps the most famous books called The Journalist and the Murderer. She wrote quite a lot about psychoanalysis. So another of her great books is called In the Freud Archives. All her writing is political in a sense it's about conflict and uh, power and the stories that people tell. And it was often quite confrontational in the sense that The Journalist and the Murderer led to a multi-year legal action by one of the people who thought that they'd been misrepresented by her. And In the Freud Archives describes a world which is riven by This is the sort of fight over the legacy of Freud in the world of psychoanalysis, riven by conflict and bad behavior and bad faith. But what I've always loved about her writing is that she manages to be incredibly opinionated, brutally opinionated, while coming across as dispassionate, as standing above it all. She has a remarkably cool eye, for human foibles, and in lacerating people's behavior, she manages to do it in a way that sounds like she's not partisan, she's not party pre to anything. So to be opinionated while somehow being dispassionate, and at the same time, to maintain that kind of air of dispassion while conveying some very strongly held opinions, I mean, it cuts both ways. She's both dispassionate while opinionated and opinionated while dispassionate. And that seems to me that almost the model for one way of engaging with and thinking about politics, it always seems to be people often feel there's a choice that if you're not going to be in the fray, taking sides, you have to be neutral, balanced, open to all sides. It's almost impossible to be neutral, balanced and open to all sides. And at the same time, particularly when thinking about contemporary politics, once you get drawn in to the partisan fray. It's very, very hard to get out again. On this podcast, it's one of the things that we wrestle with all the time, but the hope is that it is possible to talk about politics without it seeming like you've been sucked in to the, the back and forth of the, the most vicious partisan struggles without giving up your opinions. And she, Janet Malcolm, did that in a way that just seems to me an absolute model for a certain kind of engagement with the world, she wrote like no one else. It's Her style is completely distinctive to her. I can't think of anyone else who captured it. And it cut across all sorts of different things. She wrote about art. She wrote a great book about Chekhov. It's always very personal. And yet it never feels like she's picked a side and then she's going to dig in. And it's always surprising. And it was funny. She was masterful at that. Uh, The other person I would say that I find myself thinking about a lot is a philosopher called Bernard Williams, who wrote about all sorts of things, but particularly about the relationship between ethics and morality and politics. He's often described now as, this is a slightly academic term, but as a realist, meaning that he was very sceptical of the idea that the way to think about politics was to work out what was right or what was moral and then apply it political life that politics probably had its own dynamics and yet he was the kind of realist who was also wary of realpolitik and wary of that kind of brutal hard-edge realism that says that might is right and anything goes as long as you can get away with it and he tried over a long career writing about many many different subjects many of them which had nothing to do with politics many of them were straightforwardly about morality or ethics but trying to find that space between being a moralizer and being either amoral or immoral and he grappled with it over a very long career i don't think he ever resolved it but in the struggle there was something kind of magnificent about the relentlessness of his pursuit of the space between moralizing and letting anything go and he was also a really engaged public intellectual in the sense that he was very involved in sort of public inquiries and commissions very influential on the, the small l liberal side on questions of pornography, of sexual morality. I once uh, researched and wrote an article about the history of gambling regulation in the UK. And there was a, a royal commission, the sort of the gatherings of the great and the good that used to be convened to try and come to a judgment on a question that was thought to stand outside of party politics. So, gambling was one of those in the 1970s. Was it possible to liberalize the gambling laws? And that commission had on it David Coleman, the football commentator, Marge Proops, uh, what used to be called Agni I guess now, advice columnist, and Bernard Williams, moral philosopher, and between them and others, David Coleman, Marge Proops, and Bernard Williams came up with a plan to liberalise gambling laws in the UK, which in the end, actually, I think, in the long run, had pretty bad consequences. I think gambling laws are too liberal in this country now. But I always like the idea of a moral philosopher who was perfectly happy to co-author a report with David Coleman.
2: If I think about this question in terms of the biggest impact on the way in which I think about British politics, the answer is undoubtedly the person who taught me British politics as an undergraduate at Warwick University in the middle of the 1980s, a man called Jim Bullpit, who didn't write very much. He was a very very good teacher. The book that explains really the way in which he thought about British politics is a book called Territory and Power in the United Kingdom. And he also wrote a now much cited article about the first stature government called Mrs. Thatcher's Domestic Statecraft, The Discipline of the New Democracy. And the reason why he's had such an impact on the way in which I've thought about British politics partly goes back to the the shock of being taught about the first stature government. By him in the last year of my time at Warwick. This was by far the most popular course of the third year options. Indeed, you had to sort of like, get up very early to get in a queue to to be able to get on it. And basically, he turned all our views of the First Thatcher government, which being young students in the middle of the 1980s, were generally left wing and moralistic, upside down by insisting that we try and think about the First Thatcher government analytically and try to understand it as having specific political purposes relating to the Conservative Party through historical time. And I remember several times coming out of of his lectures and thinking that I understood absolutely nothing. All the opinions that I'd had about the Thatcher government were in some sense worthless because there were things he was pointing out that I just hadn't even begun to think about. I think that what he had to say about the politics of the United Kingdom, the Union of the, the United Kingdom in that book is pretty insightful. It's a very schematic book, it skips through a, a lot of history very quickly with not much attention to detail, but the sense that he conveys of the political contingency of the Union and the way in which we can only think about its historical development in the context of British foreign policy, the geopolitical position that Britain is in in the continent of Europe is very telling. More generally, I'd say that I've tended to think about politics in ways that are influenced by all kinds of things that might look a bit random from the outside. I think at a stage in my career as a politics academic probably from some time, in the latter part of the the 90s, after I'd been in Cambridge for a few years and into the 2000s, I became quite influenced by the ancient Greek and Roman historians. Thucydides and the Roman historians like Tacitus as well. And I don't mean that in the sense of developing deep knowledge about either Athenian history or Roman history, but just the sense of the way in which politics was understood through rise and fall cycles, and the ways in which these historians tied together what was happening in a terms of what we will now I think conceive of as the let's say the domestic politics of Rome the Roman Republic itself and its relation to the Roman Empire and then the way in which these if you like grand political questions also were playing out in terms of the psychologies often the pathological psychologies of individuals and I found that I think quite a liberating way of trying to understand politics compared to the narrow confines of what gets called political science.
1: So the last question is, you make a running joke about how often your predictions are wrong, but which of your disproven predictions, if any, have overturned the assumptions that led you to making them, and how?
0: I think that it is true. (laughs) Our predictions are often wrong. Um, I think it is specifically related to election outcomes. We've been living through this period of surprising election results, and I think we've all learned that We shouldn't be surprised by being surprised. And yet that's the hardest lesson to learn, if you know what I mean. But I'm often struck by the fact that when people hear what I do for a living, they ask me to predict what will happen. So they think it's the job in a sense of studying politics to have a sense of who's going to win the next election, who's up, who's down. And I genuinely think I have no more idea than anyone else of that. And I often say that, and then people think, well, you're just sort of shirking your responsibilities. How can you take a paycheck to be an academic who studies politics and not tell me who's going to win the next election? And I want to say, well, I'm sure that's not what I'm being paid to do. But also, if I tell you, I'm just going to add another piece of random information to all the other random information that you have out there available to you. I don't think we're alone in that. Politicians are no good. Many of them, one or two are, but most of them are no good at predicting election outcomes. And Political commentators, journalists certainly are no good at it. I know Dominic Cummings thinks that no one's any good at it apart from him. And it should be said, I've just started subscribing to the Dominic Cummings substack so that I can read his thoughts before they're filtered through the mainstream media. And on his substack, he offers his services for various things that he thinks he's able to help people with. And one is making better predictions. So maybe we should hire him. I don't think we can afford him, unfortunately, but maybe we should hire him. But I would make a distinction between our ability to predict electoral outcomes and short-term twists and turns of political fate, because a lot of it is luck and contingency and fate. And a lot of it is very hard to read simply because of the complexity from having a sense of the direction of travel of politics or the patterns that are at work. And I think Helen You, in particular, are really good at seeing the patterns in sort of complex range of political activities and outcomes and what connects them which is not at all the same as making predictions and having a sense of the direction of travel of politics and the frame within which choices are going to have to be made which at the moment people might either be shirking or not aware of at all that is something that I think I don't think I'm very good at it but I think you're quite good at it and therefore the podcast is quite good at it but that's not that's not a prediction that's a framework for understanding so the way in which I've changed is to try not to make predictions but it's really hard my mum is always asking me what's going to happen it's really hard to tell your own mother that though you do this for a living you're not going to tell her because you don't know so what I've learned is just to try and be tougher even with my mum.
2: Well I'm very glad to hear that because obviously that you've decided you're going off predictions because what because I'm
0: particularly bad at it.
2: Because you used to be much keener on forcing us into making.
0: Well, that's because I also have an eye for um, what our audience likes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and the time when I was absolutely most wrong, not blaming you at all, is, is that <laughs> I decided that I would be arrogant enough to decide I would offer a prediction when you weren't even pushing me to. <laughs> I think that the the one that I was absolutely wrong about, and I've spent quite a lot of time after thinking about why I was wrong, was a 2017 general election and the fact that Labour did as well as the Labour Party did in that election. I think when I look back at it, you can see that there were some quite specific contingencies in place because what happened in 2019 was what I thought would happen in 2017 and didn't. But that obviously wasn't an explanation in the months after the 2017 election. I think the danger for all of us with predictions is that there are always where elections are concerned and not perhaps only where elections are concerned, like multiple variables in play. And the danger is when you attach too much weight to one of them, and particularly perhaps that you don't see the way in which it interacts with others. Now, I think that there was something that is actually quite remarkable about the 2017 election just six weeks before, that outcome genuinely did look implausible. And I think that we're better off in trying to understand what goes on in elections and understanding that there's different outcomes in play. One of them at any one time might be more likely than the others. And then there's a a set of contingencies that will interact to, at that moment, determine which one prevails. And the odd thing about 2017 was that it, it simultaneously required Labour to be in such a terrible position, just say two months before the election, and the Conservatives to make such a bad mistake over the social care issue that exposed almost overnight all the limitations of Theresa May as a public campaigner, and it required the person who was leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron, to be essentially somebody who lots of liberal voters found very difficult to vote for that person's party. And the ways in which those three interacted over that period of time, I think, can explain retrospectively what happened, regardless of what then came about in 2019. That would potentially throw the support for Labour part of that explanation into some doubt. But I think there is another interesting case to think about, which isn't about elections. I think that at least a number of us on this podcast thought that there was a better chance than there turned out to be, or at least that there would be closer votes on the meaningful votes on Theresa May's withdrawal agreement than there were. And I know that I thought at a certain points during that winter and early spring that there would be more Labour abstentions on the later meaningful votes, second and third one, than there turned out to be. And the reason why I did was because I thought that it would be in those... Labour MPs' self-interest to do that and that they would realise that they were better served by allowing this withdrawal agreement to pass rather than to deal with the consequences of what would happen when it fell down. Now I think you can say okay that my starting place was correct because some of those Labour MPs who didn't vote for the withdrawal agreement then ended up losing their seats as a consequence of that and some others have since expressed some regret about the fact that not only did they not abstain, but they now saying that they wish that they had voted for it. But that was still an overestimation on my part of political actors rationality. And actually, they didn't do what was in their self interest to do. And we shouldn't really ever be surprised, I think, by that.
0: And in a way, that what, among other things, what that shows is that politicians aren't much good at prediction either. And I think <laughs> we've learned that over, over recent years, too. We did record an episode partly about this with David Spiegelhalter, which was prompted by the question of super forecasting and and indeed it connected to some of the things that Dominic Cummings was saying or advocating for back then. And it includes a sort of broad framework that Helen has touched on, that the challenge of prediction is taking account of the range of variables, not getting locked into one, not sinking your costs into something that you've committed to in the past. It's an incredibly demanding and challenging thing. It's a rare skill. It requires constant honing it's something that you possibly can be trained in. But even then, probably most people succumb to the temptations that we all feel to revert back to our prejudices and biases. And I certainly believe that's true of me. But the other thing that came out strongly there is that we all have a sort of misunderstanding of what prediction is, because prediction is probability and what we should be doing. And and we talked to Nate Silver about this too, the The 538 guru, who's often blamed for calling elections wrong, and he always says, well, all I ever do is put a probability on it. So if I say, there's a, as I think he did in 2016, there's something like a 25% chance that Donald Trump will win, and then Donald Trump wins, I'm not wrong. I mean, the people who said there was no chance were wrong, and some people did say that. But it's a bit like weather forecasts. Everyone's so frustrated with their phone when it says there's an 80% chance of rain, and then it doesn't rain, because what people want from a prediction is... And either or, either this will happen or that will happen. And that's the thing that we should all resist. But of course, that doesn't make for great radio, podcast, whatever it is that we do. doesn't make for an intuitively appealing hook for the future to say there's a 30% chance. What people want to know, like my mum, is who's going to win. And I've learned that you can't really win because if you say there's a 30% chance of this, people aren't interested. And if you say this will happen, you're usually wrong. If you follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore, or on Facebook, or if you go to our website, you can find some of those prediction episodes, and we will tweet links to the ones where we got things wrong, but also the episode with David Spiegelhalter, where we talk about how to make predictions. We've been doing Talking Politics now for five years, and we've done every week for the last five years. And we're now going to take a short break this summer to give us a chance to regroup and to rethink We've also, for nearly a year and a half, been recording all of these episodes online rather than in person and in the same room. Helen and I haven't been able to sit down and to see each other in the same space when we record this since last March. But we really hope we are going to be able to do that from September. And September is when we're coming back. So for a couple of months, there won't be new episodes of Talking Politics. We will put out links to old episodes. And if you follow us on any of our social media channels, or you can find them all on our website, the old episodes are there. And we'll try and find ones that we think are particularly interesting for anything that happens over the summer. And we will be keeping an eye on politics with a view to coming back refreshed, regrouped, in person, to talk about lots of important things. We've got interesting elections coming up in Germany. We'll be talking about France. We'll be looking at British politics. We're going to be focusing on climate. We will be talking about Climate Gate and also about the COP gathering. We're going to be talking to Hilary Mantel about court politics, past and present. Adam Tooze has a new book out and we're going to be checking in with him regularly. We're going to come back with an episode with Amir Srinivasan on the politics of sex. We are incredibly grateful to all of you for all your support all of your input, all of the hundreds of questions that we got when we asked for questions a few weeks ago. Great questions we didn't get a chance to answer. And we're also gonna be exploring new ways that we can engage with you in the autumn to do more Q and A sessions. And we're hoping too soon, we'll be able to do more live events as well. And we really look forward to rejoining you in September. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics.